Hello, and welcome to First State Insights, a podcast presented by the University of Delaware's Institute for Public Administration. We call ourselves IPA for short. My name is Julia O'Hanlon, and I'm a policy scientist with IPA. We're located in the Biden School for Public Policy and Administration. In keeping with the U.S. Administration for Community Living's Celebration of Older Americans Month, IPA and First Day Insights have dedicated several conversations on university and community partnerships related to aging in place. On April 29th, 2022, I spoke with Drs. Allison Carpin and Elizabeth Orsega-Smith, and we talked about interdisciplinary partnerships and expertise supporting older Delawareans. Enjoy the discussion. So today I'm joined by my UD colleagues, Dr. Allison Carpin, who is the co-director of the Center for Research in Education and Social Policy and a faculty member in the Department of Human Development and Family Sciences. Also with us is Dr. Beth Arcega-Smith. She is the Associate Professor in the Department of Behavioral Health and Nutrition and Program Director of the Master's in Science Health Promotion Degree Program. Individually, we've been working in various studies, evaluations, and applied research projects involving topics related to aging in place and community connections for older Delawareans. This includes work around food security issues, health promotion programs, intergenerational connections, transportation and mobility, and local planning related work. Over the past three years, we've had the opportunity to join together on a project that has brought our individual expertise and focus areas together. And we'll touch on that a bit later in our episode. So first of all, thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us, Julia. Yes, thanks, Julia, for having us. So to kick us off, Allison, I'm just going to point to you and ask if you could tell us a little bit about your background and interest areas and some of the work you've been doing as both a faculty member and a research center leader here at UD. Sure, thanks for the opportunity. So my work centers on the ways that community access to healthy food can work to improve health. And I began my career working in a pioneering nonprofit called the Food Trust, which is based in Philadelphia. And the goal there was to help people increase access to nutritious, affordable food for everyone equally with an effort to really focus on equity in communities. So this work now I've carried with me to UD and I've been here for about eight years pursuing these kinds of objectives. And one project that I thought might be interesting to mention on this podcast is one that I recently finished where I gave bonus dollars or we studied the giving of bonus dollars to adults who participate in SNAP and also shop at farmer's markets. So as you can imagine, if you're using your food stamps or SNAP at farmer's markets, you might need a few extra bucks to be able to purchase more produce for your family. And what we looked at was how much that made an impact for the participants. And different amounts were given across the country. So some programs offered $1 bonus for $1 that was spent. Sometimes other programs offered $2 for every $1 spent. So you could see that it's kind of a different multiplier, even down to 50 cents for every dollar spent. And what we looked at was whether these programs increased fruit and vegetable purchasing and consumption, and really which amount kind of served to increase consumption the most. 
And what we found was that giving $2 in bonus money for every $1 spent resulted in significant increases in expenditures at markets. But just as importantly, families that were using these bonus dollars consumed a lot more fruits and vegetables. And right now, from a policy connection, there's Gus Schumacher incentive program that's at the federal level, and it's part of a federal program. So the research that we did really helped support the ongoing use and support of this federal initiative. I'm also proud to say, and I have to mention before we move on, that I have a new book out this month called Food Access in America. It's actually the second edition, which looks really closely at how food inequities especially around food access, have happened across many cities in the U.S. It gets a little bit into the history of those inequities and how policies and programs have helped or hindered those inequities over the years. Thank you, uh, Allison, for sharing your background and talking a little bit about your recent work. It's really interesting and obviously super important. And certainly congratulations on your new book. It's on my short list and I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading that. It's a really important topic nationally and, and here in Delaware. Beth, if you could talk a little bit about your background now and expertise in, in interest areas as a faculty member in the College of Health Sciences here at UD. Well, thank you, Julia. I began my career at the University of Delaware, primarily focusing on investigating the behavioral factors associated with the concepts of healthy aging in community dwelling older adults. So my initial work here at the University of Delaware focused primarily on physical activity promotion in local parks, and then it expanded to the use of exer games in the local senior centers and using behavior change theory as its core examining some of the constructs such as social support and self-efficacy. Most of my work is community-engaged research that has incorporated feedback and insight, which is really important whenever you're looking at community work. So gathering that feedback and insight from both community stakeholders, key informants, whether it be individuals in the senior centers themselves, could be administrators or those that have an interest in the aging community. And primarily that was done through the use of interviews and focus groups to help inform the research. Thanks, Beth. Just so we can, uh, for our listeners' sake, can you shed some light on what you mean by extra games? Sure. So extra games are primarily video games that have a component of activity or exercise. Typically, people think of a Wii or Connect are really good examples. And how we've been able to use them in the senior centers is they've been able to engage older adults, but yet provide some type of physical activity. In fact, many of the local senior centers have Wii bowling leagues, and they participate in Wii bowling on a regular basis within their sites. Thank you. Yes, I know that's a really a popular activity at the senior centers. And it's sort of like a exercise by accident. It's something fun to do, but it's, it's healthy and, and keeping folks active too. And Beth, I know one of your interest areas is the influence of intergenerational programs and the benefits to both older adults and younger generations. And because of some of my work with senior centers here in Delaware, we've, we've had the opportunity to get together a bit on looking at some of the intergenerational activities and programs that are, are taking place here in Delaware. 
You also have um, some students uh, who actually go out in the field to work with some of the center members. Do you want to talk a little bit about that work and how how that supports health promotion programs, both in the community and for the students interested in um, health promotion careers? Sure. So as previously mentioned, a lot of my work does involve interacting with the community dwelling older adults. Initially, the work was solely looking at having the college age students interacting with the older adults, primarily as summer engaged scholars working on programs using, as I had mentioned before, the We Are Connect as platforms to increase physical activity. As we continued working with the members and leadership at the local senior centers, we realized that there was an opportunities for older adults to include their grandchildren and started to look at some multi-generational interactions. This really seemed to be a natural fit, especially during the summer months when many of these older adults oftentimes take on additional caregiving roles. So we started to incorporate, just as an example, some team-based programming at the senior centers, which really involved the older adults teaming up with their grandchildren as partners for some of these regular eight-week programs. So some examples were team bowling. Uh, We did some Olympic challenges, again, oftentimes using these extra games. And it's really interesting because in some cases, some of these older adults would bring multiple grandchildren and they would participate with their, quote, adopted grandparent for the day. We also partnered with a local senior center to examine their pen pal program with a local elementary school. And so this interaction went primarily just beyond writing back and forth, but instead how to change some of the stigmas around older adults and today's youth. If you kind of look at some of the national evidence-based research, it really indicates there are some significant benefits to older adults and youth who consistently engage in shared activities and learning opportunities. For older adults, some of these benefits include decreased social isolation, increased opportunities to learn new technologies, and then also develop cultural competencies and opportunities to perhaps mitigate early memory loss. And then if you look simultaneously, Youth at all ages of development, levels, and backgrounds are also supported. In particular, some of this intergenerational work helps to address the challenges of at-risk youth, maybe those who don't have the needed, much-needed family or community support to succeed in schools and among peers. If we kind of look at the increase in aging population and the increased risk for developing chronic diseases, it really becomes increasingly more important to assist older adults to become connected with health promotion programs. If we look at senior centers, are viable venues for this type of health promotion programming. And then students, again, both on the graduate level and the undergraduate level, who are interested in promoting positive health and kind of thinking both mental and physical health have access to this population to kind of think about putting the knowledge and skills gained into the class in the classroom, putting those into practice. So kind of think about the senior centers can benefit from this type of programming while students on all levels can gain some practical experiences in working with a particular population. Yeah, definitely. And thanks for sharing more on your interest and work in this area and sort of putting into that national context. I'm, I'm certainly grateful for some of the work we've done together, as I mentioned, and As you know, part of my work at the Institute for Public Administration involves assessing the programs among Delaware senior centers who are funded by the state of Delaware 
And I, I do agree with you that I think these community centers are excellent venues and opportunities for additional intergenerational activities, particularly for students who are interested in learning more about health promotion programs for older generations. And speaking of students in the field working with older community members, Allison, I know you've done, well, you've done a lot of work, evaluation work, period. And then you've been doing some evaluation work and assessing programs that are looking at opportunities to support older adults. For example, Lori's Hands, which is a service learning program based and founded here in uh, Newark, Delaware. And it connects local residents who are living at home with a chronic illness uh, with student volunteers who assist them with like housework, meal prep, but also provide some relationship building and, and story sharing. And I'm just curious to hear from you why this evaluate, why the evaluation of these kinds of programs is so important to not only the organizations who, who host them or facilitate them, but also the larger community older adults and their families, uh, students, researchers, and other practitioners? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Julia. Thanks for bringing up Lori's Hands, too. It's a great organization. Lori's Hands is working to bridge gaps in our service models. And I know that across the state, we spend a lot of time thinking about how we better connect some of the needs of older adults And Lori's Hands is one example of ways that they're trying to sort of bridge these gaps and in softer ways, working alongside the healthcare system, but not necessarily to provide healthcare, more some of those softer services. And so because of this novel approach, I think it's particularly important that we are supporting them with evaluation, because I think in our hearts, we understand that these kinds of um, social interactions, especially after covid And the kinds of just small supports that we provide on a day-to-day basis really make a big difference, but capturing how those differences happen can be a little bit tough. Lori's Hands is both teaching students and also serving the community, which offers another opportunity. So it's meeting this dual objective where students are able to interact with seniors. Um, They're trying to understand a little bit more about how budgeting and other you know, day-to-day activities of daily living are affected when it comes to the the senior homebound population. So for students, it's a great opportunity. And at the same time, Lori's Hands is providing all these services on basically soft money, right, grants. So they could use the support to understand where the impacts are, how organizations like them could measure better measure and capture what the economic impact and social impact are of their programs and also what kinds of modifications maybe they might need to make. If students give feedback about sort of what's working and what's not working, they can maximize each of the benefits. I think too that these kinds of evaluations that I know you all do and um, certainly Beth also is working on as well really help to inform these community-based companionship healthcare service impacts and how these hybrid models actually can work and how they can be rolled out across the state. Because I really think this is the future of how we start to bridge these gaps in efficient, economically efficient and impactful ways. So it's really an important emerging area of research, I would say. 
Yeah, really good points. And I think the Lori's Hands partnership opportunity is is a great one. And um, we'll actually be speaking with some of Lori's Hands staff and possibly some program participants in a future episode and, and learn a little bit more about what they do and their evolution. I know in the intro, I mentioned some of the work the three of us have done together in the past three years. And that's been really part of a federally funded pilot program aimed at connecting homebound meal clients in Delaware, primarily in Sussex and now Kent County, with other resources, including primary care and skilled nursing when needed. And our various research and work areas sort of came together to form an evaluation team for that project. And it's certainly been an interesting project. So thinking about what you said, Allison, sort of this future and opportunity and about keeping people in their homes and in the community as as we age and sort of this dual framework. Why do you think having interdisciplinary expertise at the table and involved in these kinds of programs designed to keep people, you know, independent, connected and healthy is is important now and into the future? Well, I think we're learning more and more about the interconnectedness of so many of these kinds of strategies in terms of their outcomes on mental and physical health, that I think that the extent to which we're able to have an interdisciplinary approach makes it more likely that we'll really reveal how these impacts are coming about and what they really are. I think, too, we really owe it to the citizens of Delaware and across the country to be able to maintain this dignity and care and comfort to be able to age in their home. And to the extent that we can lend a hand in helping to describe how and when this can best occur and also how cost savings could also occur as a result. I think we're really able to inform policy and also really help families. We know, too, that as someone ages at home, it's really important that they not be isolated, that they get the food and nutrition that they need, even if they might have trouble preparing it. And so I think that this issue of maintaining your status at home is one of both, you know, body, mind and spirit. And some of these programs really help to capture that, as do the interdisciplinary nature of partnerships like ours, trying to understand how we take it from, you know, food to fork to policy. And I would agree with Allison that the national trends really speak to the aging community's desire to age in place. Individuals primarily prefer to continue to live in their own community where they have social connections, are comfortable with their medical care, and are familiar with the resources that are available to them. Social isolation can have a large detrimental impact on older adults in terms of cognition, physical and mental health. So it's really important to think about ways we can mitigate social isolation. And that really requires a gathering of many disciplines to kind of form a partnership in order to work on this issue. And in my work in in the public policy arena, The aging in place space is really an intersection of various policy related issues, whether that's um, local planning and zoning and, you know, trying to build healthy environments that really consider where people live, what types of housing, you know, is available for folks, how they get around, 
and how they can continue to be engaged and stay connected within their communities as, as folks age. And I also echo what Allison, you mentioned, you know, talked about the effect of the pandemic and, you know, particularly on older adults and their ability to remain healthy at home while isolated. I know we've heard firsthand from our project partners who are in the field, whether it's volunteers, homebound meal providers, and some of the nursing staff we've engaged with about the importance of having ears and eyes checking in on folks, particularly those who are most vulnerable and who might need additional supports, but aren't quite sure how to get them. So thinking about that, I think we often hear about opportunities to monetize health and wellness programs that are geared at supporting aging in place and or social, emotional health and well-being. And we've talked a little bit about this as a group too. Again, COVID has really shed light on the future of long-term care and community-based programs and ways to meet new and emerging demands as the country's population continues to age. So to both of you, what are your thoughts on this? Is it possible to put a dollar figure on health prevention and promotion programs aimed at supporting older adults remaining in, in the home or in the community? What a critical question, <laughs> Julia, I think. And um, one that I'm not sure we've figured out how to answer yep. right yet. I think that it is certainly a real world problem that a lot of programs are, are grappling with right now, especially I think nonprofits who are filling these gaps. Certainly, it's all encompassing. And as public health leaders and experts in families and human sciences, it's really a great opportunity to apply our interdisciplinary knowledge to help to think about the different ways that we could connect dots between health, well-being, and cost savings. I think there's really two facets that need to be addressed, aging community and the quality of life. And it's really important that we determine how we can promote healthy aging and in which individuals are we doing a, a service to provide specific kinds of care to help them live longer and also improve their quality of life as they continue to age. You know, sometimes monetizing things leaves out details like quality of life, not just, you know, care costs that were saved. And we know, too, that in some countries, these strategies are really readily put into place. They have the social supports and the networks so that people live a long, high-quality life. But I think here in the U.S., it's a little bit trickier as we think about these changes, which here would really look like sweeping changes and what that would look like for our culture. And then obviously, too, how we would capture that in terms of cost savings. Yeah, I think this is one of the most challenging questions in the field today. We need to develop some frameworks that effectively shift thinking from treatment to the idea of prevention and not just talking the prevention talk, but actually investing in it and recognizing that these savings are more than just a dollar sign, but it really connects back to that piece that Allison had just talked about, the quality of life as well. And I can think back a couple of years ago with a, a presentation that was looking at the cost of obesity and a point was made that the cost was not just the cost of the care, but also the cost of sick days, lost lives. It was also the cost associated with the distractions that prohibited innovations, creativity and productivity in the highest sense. 
So it's really hard to kind of monetize these concepts in terms of a, a monetary amount. Yeah, I agree. I agree with both of you on this. And it is it's a difficult question. And then, you know, particularly regarding your points on how to appropriately measure and quantify quality of life indicators and all the work that's being done to promote high quality living as as folks age. I do believe that there's a lot of work that we still need to do in this country. Um, But I do feel like, you know, connecting practitioners with with knowledge thinkers and content experts is definitely a good step and a really important step, you know, particularly in interdisciplinary natures. And I think to some degree, I think you both alluded to this, like, you know, recognizing that there's just some things that we can't or you know, we can't measure in that way. So that's that's important to think about, too. So just to kind of wrap up in terms of things on on the horizon in your research and work, are there are there any new or emerging programs, research projects or information that you'd like to to just briefly um, mention? Sure. So um, we're involved right now in a study looking at the women, infants and children, the WIC programs, cash value benefit. It's a pretty interesting study. We're looking back during COVID and interviewing mothers who are participating in the WIC program to understand how this cash value benefit, which is actually a unique part of the WIC program. It just provides dollars for produce, fruits and vegetables. And what happened during COVID was that the amount of money that was allocated fluctuated relatively significantly from highs to lows in a way that it really creates this nice natural experiment where we can talk to parents about when they had high amounts of money, what that experience was like, how they were able to feed their family. And then when they had less money available through this mechanism, how that was influenced. And a lot of this policy is coming up on the federal legislative agenda in the next year. And so this data hopefully will be able to inform sort of what that right price point is for the cash value benefit for families. And all that data is being collected here in Delaware. Wow, that's really impressive. Thanks for sharing. And I'll definitely look forward to hearing more about that as it evolves. Beth, anything you wanted to share? Sure. Well, thanks. Um, One of the things that I've been looking at more recently is kind of thinking about with the increase in the aging population, um, we've noticed that cognition has been an important factor to examine. And in particular, kind of figure out ways to mitigate the declines in cognition that oftentimes occur with aging. And this has become more of a kind of a spotlight whenever we were looking at social isolation that oftentimes occurred with some of these individuals who during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. So one of the things that we were uh, looking at was implementing, and we did implement a virtual cognitive stimulation program that was primarily based on the arts. And this just was a way to be sure to connect some of these older adults, especially those that were socially isolated with each other, but yet also be engaged in some fun ways to hopefully enhance their cognition. And, you know, even though right now, a lot of the senior centers are back to close to 100%, 
we know that this is not the end of pandemics. We know this is probably, there'll be probably other times in the future that we will see maybe a temporary shutdown or there may be a disaster. And it is important to figure out ways that we can still connect some of these individuals, especially those that are socially isolated, with something that is stimulating them so that we do not see these significant declines in cognition that oftentimes occurs with aging. Absolutely. Yeah. And I look forward to reconnecting with you about that for sure. I just want to thank you both for joining us today. I have so really, really valued the opportunity to work with both of you. And I, I really look forward to future opportunities to work with you on other projects. So, so thank you so much. Thank you. To learn more about the collaborative work among today's discussion leaders, please visit the University of Delaware Center for Research in Education and Social Policy and find our reports on an innovative Title III senior healthcare program. For information on our individual work and expertise, you can find us at our respective university homes in the Biden School of Public Policy and Administration, the College of Education and Human Development, and the College of Health Sciences. To learn or hear more about IPA's first date insights, please visit ipa.udel.edu.